0: Before I begin, uh, with a continuation, really, you know, many ways of, uh, of the story of Yaakov and Esav, which has tremendous repercussions in today's time, as we begin to see, you know, from last week, what happens if Esav had done tshuva repentance, which he didn't, of course, because Yaakov did not realize that it was a tremendous opportunity. There's just a couple of things that I wanted to mention which I think is uh, b- very noteworthy, <clears throat> um, one thing we see, which is uh, in many ways very important, we see that there are many leaders and righteous people, Tzadikim, you know, and Gdolim, or Rebbes, whatever, that are dying. Now, it is true that many of them are old, which is true, in their 90s or whatever, but it's also true that there are young people People who are dying, who in a certain sense, you know, really have many more years that they can influence people. And not only that, I once mentioned a statistic. Uh, It was a study done in London where they estimate that there's 15.1 million Jews in the world. Not many. But in any case, out of that 15.1 million, they estimate that the Torah community, you know, that observes the Torah at whatever level, is only about 2.1 million. That means 13 million Jews, according to them, are gone. Whether it be assimilated, right, or intermarried, right, which is integrated in the non-Jewish world, or just completely unaffiliated with Judaism. I mean, who would ever imagine that this ultimately is what happens in the Torah world, you know, to the religion of Judaism? Who would ever imagine that the Jews would almost have disappeared? I mean, they won't. So the question is, what does that mean really based on the divine plan of creation? What is God doing? I mean, he never did this before where so many Jews are disappearing, like I say, assimilation, uh, intermarriage, and so on. You know, what does it mean? Well, we don't really understand, you know, what God is doing in a real sense, or in an absolute sense. <clears throat> but there is something which is very interesting. I once mentioned that a long time ago, there's a Pesach in the Torah, that says, uh, that the Torah will never be forgotten from his uh, seed, which means from the Jewish people. So God guarantees that the Torah will always exist among the Jews. It won't be forgotten. What is interesting about that Pesach, or verse, is that all it takes is ten Jews, or even one Jew, to know the Torah, and therefore it won't be forgotten. And meanwhile, 99.99% of Jews can not forget it, you see? So, the Pesach doesn't seem to be saying so much that God will protect the Torah, that it's not forgotten. It's almost like he's saying, that is what's going to happen. That we're going to, we are going to reach a time at the end of time, right, where things are so bad, there's such great darkness, right, Uh, that only a handful of Jews will remain religious, you see, and the question is, we see that, I mean, 13 million Jews that are gone is incredible, you see, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's all over the world, we're not talking about Jews in one country, the Jewish people in general, you know, in a certain way are disappearing, I mean, there will always be Jews, there will always be Judaism, you know, because there's, uh, there, in many ways, there's a vibrant Torah community, and so on, you know, there are, so there are things taking place, but when you look at the percentages, obviously, the overwhelming percentage, you know, probably 80, 85, or 88% of Jews, that's, a, that's an enormous amount of Jewish people are gone, So the question you have to ask, what seems to be the design of God? What exactly is he doing? Why is he allowing this to happen? Especially when we saw COVID. COVID took a lot of Jewish people, a lot of righteous people, Tamid HaChomim, Rosh Hashivas, and so on. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, what is the agenda of God? That he's doing this. Because clearly that's what he's doing. You see. Well. You could think of it in different ways. But I, my, my thesis. Is the following. You know. Ultimately speaking. What God wants to know. You see. Is. How much will the Jews. Stick. Stick with Judaism, with the Torah, you see. So what, what, what the plan seems to be that no matter how many people God takes away, how many persecutions there are, like the Holocaust, right? How many, how many tragedies and destructions, you know, and now especially we see tremendous rise of anti-Semitism. In the end of time, God wants to see the loyalty of the Jewish people. You see. So what he's simply doing is creating a situation, right, where Jews are disappearing. Where the overwhelming majority of Jews are gone. So in a certain sense he wants to see well how many people are going to stick with Judaism. They're going to stick with the Torah and believing in God. You see. Which in a certain sense is the ultimate test of the Jewish faith. To what extent will the Jews stay with God? So therefore, what he's doing is removing those elements of Jewish life uh, that promote Judaism, right? Or that reinforces Jewish values, Torah observance, and so on. And therefore, he creates a tremendous darkness, you see, because he wants to see what is the ultimate end loyalty of the Jewish people? Are they going to stay with us or not? Interesting concept. We see that, if you recall, when I gave a she'er about the Akedah, you know, the binding of Yitzchak, and so on, <clears throat> that God used that, right, as an argument against the Sutton's argument, why do you love them so much? So God said, look, even when I basically tell them, or Avraham Avinu, to kill Yitzro, he will do it. He will not abandon me, right? So that incredible concept of loyalty is what gets God to say to the Sutton, well, mida me the measure for measure. If they won't abandon me, notwithstanding the incredible difficult circumstances I put them in, then how can I abandon them? Measure for measure. So in that sense, it seems that God is doing this. You see, you know, if you think about it, Egypt had a very similar circumstance. Right? In what way? Well, if you remember, it says that the Jews were redeemed from Egypt. Basically. Because they didn't change their names, or their language, or their dress. But in every other way, they probably looked like Egyptians, you know, in a certain sense. Uh, They acted, they worshipped idols and so on. But they did maintain the identity of the Jew, which basically, when you think about it, is that. They have the same way of dressing, the same language, the same names. So you see also that even though the Jews, right, are in a terrible situation, right, with the Egyptians punishing them, and so on. They refuse, ultimately, to give up their essential identity as a Jew. That is what God needs. <clears throat> what He wants to do is introduce tremendous amount of di- difficulty and darkness, you see, and, you know, anti-Jewish climate. Because He wants to see how dark... Do I have to make it? And what will, there be, what will be their response? You see? <clears throat> so, in the end, that's what God needs in a certain sense. Not needs, because He needs it. Obviously, He doesn't need anything. But that's what He wants. To justify to the sultan. You see? Look how dark it is. Look how many good them, right? Leaders, great tzaddikim. Look how many I've taken away. Right? And they still stick with me. Ah, so therefore I cannot abandon them at all. And that will be the merit of their redemption. Which is basically what the Talmud says, the Chazal tells us, by Egypt. In that merit, that they didn't change their dress, their language, and their names. God rescued them. He redeemed them. And that was the great test of loyalty. That God wants to see. Because that in many ways is the justification. That he could present to the satanic arguments. Why do you want to rescue them? Why do you want to redeem them? Look what they sin. So God says, that's true. But they refuse to give up Judaism. You see? So therefore if they refuse to give up Judaism. Even when they sin. They still do the major elements of the identity of a Jew. Then, how can I abandon them? When you think about that, that's exactly what happened in Egypt. Uh, even though the Jews, as we know, were in the Memteshai Tumah, they were at the 49 levels right, of Tumah, defilement. They worshipped idols, right? And if they were in the Memteshai Tumah, 49 levels of you know, uh, of defomment and so on. Of course they were sinning. How else do you get to that level? Yet, uh, they would not shed the major elements that spoke that they are Jewish. Therefore, we will remain loyal to God in this way. You see, and that's what God needs as the ultimate argument of to the Sutton that if they won't abandon me, how can I abandon them? No matter what I do, take so many great Jewish neshamas souls, they still want to be loyal to me, even if it's in a small sense. Uh, What we are watching in many ways is that, you know, look, today, you know, everybody is all over, the. all the Jews are all over the world. So obviously you don't have that anymore. All the Jews in Egypt... Had obviously a language, right? A common language, right? And uh, they had a common dress and common names. But now that the Jews are spread out all over the world, well, obviously the names are different. I mean, Jew in Persia is not the same name as a Jew in Israel or America. So the names are different because everybody's spread out. The dress is different, you know, obviously, and the language is different and so on. So where is the loyalty? So, the loyalty that God wants to see, even though he makes it so dark, right, is that Jews will stick with some type of identifying element of Judaism. I had mentioned this previously, you know, that there are many Jews that can, for instance, can demonstrate their loyalty to Judaism because they very much want, they support the state of Israel. And they see the state of Israel And a Jewish state. You see? So that is an identifying element. You know? And then there are people who are absolutely not religious. Yet they will give money to a yeshiva. You know, to continue Jewish tradition. Right? Whatever they call it. And so on. So Jews can demonstrate their loyalty. Steadfastness. In many, many ways. Even if they're not religious. So that's what God does. He gives Jews the opportunity to say, I'm proud to be a Jew, even though, right, I don't do a thing, in that sense, you see? So that's what we're watching. We are watching God creating darkness, you see, in order that the Jews can demonstrate their loyalty to God. Of course, from our perspective, it's very bad. Because every time he takes a righteous person, we lose tremendously because there's a certain light that goes out. This is the problem, obviously. But that's exactly what God wants to see. You know, how low can they go, you see? So that's why we notice that there's so much difficulties for the Jews. There's tremendous rise in anti-Semitism there are people saying that the anti-Semitism climate now is like, is like Germany, you know, in 1935 or 37, or whatever, right? Uh, that's how bad it is all over the world, you see. And uh, so, therefore, there has to be a rationale in some way of why God seems to be taking so many lofty Jewish souls people who are great Torah scholars, Tamidich HaChomim and Rosh Hashivas. Especially now with the advent of COVID, so many people have died and so on. In any case, so obviously our job is, listen, whatever God throws at us, we have to remain loyal. We have to show Him that we still want to be close to Him. Uh, you know, we want him to take over. We want him to end the exile. To build the Beis Hamidosh. And to bring the Mashiach. Anyway, I thought I would give that as an interesting explanation of why we see this. So many people, righteous people, leaders, luminaries that are dying. Uh, now, also I wanted to mention something which I think is very, uh, very uh, auspicious and so on. And that is that America has now entered a very bad time. Why? Well, we know that in um, June of 2016, or excuse me, June of 2015, I think it was June 26, the Supreme Court came out and interpreted the Constitution, that you cannot discriminate against marriage of anybody. Yeah, you can't discriminate. A person can marry whoever they want. So they redefined the definition, I should say, of marriage. You know, not as the union between a man and a woman, but between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. You I mean, whatever you want. That's what they did. And I've commented on that. Well, that was the interpretation of the constitution. But it wasn't a federal law. You know, the Supreme Court said that's the law of the constitution. So on December 13th of this year, 2022, the Congress passed a law and it was signed by the President Joe Biden on December 13th. Where they created a federal law called the Marriage Act right? Which now means that you cannot discriminate in marriage. Now it is the official legal law of the land. So it's sort of like both the Supreme Court, uh, the, their decision, their interpretation. <clears throat> so America has now entered a very bad time. Very. Because if you recall, I said that the the Medrash Rabbah right? Parshish Neuach says that what sealed the decree of the Marble the flood right? That destroyed the entire planet. What are we talking about here? A cataclysmic event that destroyed the entire earth? All living things basically. Except Neuach and his family. So the Medved says what sealed the decree, and the, it answers. Because in those days, if a man would marry a man or an animal, you can imagine that, he would have to write aksubah, which meant that it was legal. And you would have to write a super where you spell out your responsibilities to your spouse, whoever that is. God will not tolerate that because that's fundamentally the end of reproduction. Ah, you see, so he said, enough is enough. I'm going to wipe out mankind, which he did. America has now entered the concept or the class of nations that are incredibly corrupt, especially in the whole area of marriage. So we could say America is no longer the USA, the United States of America, it's the United Sodomites, Sodom, right, of America. That's what America has done. They have now become, right, <clears throat> the equivalent of the Marble generation. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. You see, and I believe because America has now disgraced itself with that war, that Israel and I once mentioned this, right? That when Asav goes down, then America, then Jews go up. We know that from Ula Oimila Oim When Rivka came to get a prophecy of what was happening, so they told her, right, that you are bearing, you are going to bear two great nations, and they will never be equal. When one is down, then the other's mazel will rise and vice-versa, and so on. Which is interesting. We have just passed Hanukkah, right? That's what happened so far. What essentially is Hanukkah about? Well, Hanukkah, as I mentioned, is, is obviously miraculous, you see. But what was the accomplishment of Hanukkah? Is that the Jews reasserted their belief in God. That God is the ultimate source of existence, of everything. You see, that's what they ultimately, and therefore they reclaimed, or I should say rededicated, the Temple, the Beshamigdash. You see. In other words, they fought not only against the Greeks, a lot of people don't realize this, but there were many Jews that adapted Hellenism as a way of life. They are called the Mesyavnim, Right? the Greek bearers, those who bear the Greek, uh, you know, uh, philosophy of Hellenism. There were many Jews that did that, a lot of them, at that time. Uh, So therefore, when the Jews fought the Greeks and won, they also overcame the forces of the Mesiavnim, those Jews that are Greek, or, you know, observed the Hellenism, the Greek way of life, you see, And what's interesting, I find, is that that's what really happened on Hanukkah. It was a conflict of ideologies or perceptions of the world, of reality. And the Jews rejected the reality or the perception of reality of the Greeks. Therefore, what's interesting, if you look now in Israel, Israel has achieved a very interesting status. Basically, There is not one person, basically, who is left or a progressive, you see, in the Israeli government. They have formed a coalition, and they're all right. Right means that they are all conservative. They are basically for the state of Israel, not only its security, but the tremendous amount of, you know, benefits and advantages will now accrue to the religious, yes. And one of the main ideas is that they're going to pass a law where learning Torah is now considered a basic value of Judaism, basically equal to, all right, a secular education in Israel. I mean, that is a major step. So in a certain sense, if you think about it, Hanukkah, when this coalition was formed, right, that's when he came out and said, we have a coalition, happened in Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is the time uh, that the religious Jews won over not only the Greeks, but the Mesyavnim, those Jews who adhered to the Greek culture and so on. See? Well, that's exactly what happened. Think about that. Those leftists and progressives of Israel right? People like who? Like, you know, uh, Lapid, people like Meretz, right? People like Lieberman, even Labor, they're all out. Meretz is not even in the government. But the other ones have tiny amount of seats. They are all in the opposition. They are the equivalent of Mesyavnim. They're the heir of Rav, right? That especially last year, fought Torah, tremendously, right? Uh, And they are out of the government. So hopefully what's going to happen is there's going to be a tremendous amount of beneficial laws passed in the service of Torah and mitzvahs, right? And authentic Judaism. That happened, that coalition was formed when? On Hanukkah, which is the exact incident that happened thousands of years ago when the Jews fought the Greeks and the Messiavim, those of the left and liberals and secular people then that wanted to do away with the terror that happened on Hanukkah isn't that interesting? the timing is very interesting you see so that's what I want to bring out that America America has now descended into the pits of incredible depravity And immorality, Uh, you see, I'm not even going into, you know, the insanity of what's happening in America in terms of the southern border, you know, or the crime in the cities or the economic situation, you know, and and so on. Uh, But the depravity, the morality, what they're doing to kids in schools is beyond belief and so on. And on the other side, in Israel, right, they have been rejected. The Mesyavnim, the of the secularists are now out of the government altogether. And I'm sure they must be steaming and fuming that there's nothing they can do. All of this has happened on Chathaka. Isn't that amazing? That's what I find. And so on. So that's very, very good news. You see. Anyway, So this, so far, uh, is what's happening. Okay, so I've commented on, seem to be the the latest uh, current events, right? Uh, In terms of, yeah, what is happening and so on. Now, to get back into the discussion, because in many ways it influences today's time, you know, the conflict or the relationship between Yaakov and Esau it's really amazing when you really think about. It. <clears throat> see, now I had mentioned certain very important ideas about that <clears throat> last time. What happened if Asav had done Shufa, right? And I mentioned that all of this is alluded to in one word: that Asev returned ledarkoi, right? He returned ledarkoi means his uh, derech. In, in, in sinning and so on, because Yaakov failed to, failed to know right he failed to know the uh, extent of Esav could have done tshuva that's what I said and Yaakov failed to realize that and Esav of course returned to his evil ways which obviously is terribly unfortunate I mentioned also what happened if Esav had done tshuva right then what would have happened? And I spoke about that last week. Amazing amount of things would have happened. <coughs> you see. Now, what follows from this is something else. What the Rav Hashem did, which is very interesting, is the Hashem said the following. You see. Because Esau wanted to do tshuva, or he could have done tshuva, but he was denied that opportunity. Right? That's what we know. Therefore, the Rebosham says to him that in the end of time, or even during history, there will be times that Asov will restore himself to doing tshuva. At least in the sense of the prophecy of the Yeshiva of Shem Eva where it says, Rav Yavuid Tso'ir, that the older will serve the younger. <clears throat> That's the ultimate prophecy of the relationship between Esav and Yaakov Avinu. So what the Baruch says is because Esav wanted to do tshuva, or he demonstrated, not that he wanted, but he actually did, because he said to Yaakov, right, let that, that which is yours be yours. Right? Which means that he, he uh, had charotah. Right? He regretted. Or at least in the sense that he changed his mind. Uh, so therefore what the Bersham said in, uh, is that because you wanted to repent but you didn't. <clears throat> because Yaakov failed to realize that you were very close to doing tshuva. Therefore, over history, I will give your descendants, right, the ability to really assist the Jews, which is Rav Yavoy <coughs> that the older will assist the Jews. And we've seen that several times in history. <coughs> and I'm going to point out uh, at least uh, two things, maybe three, whatever. <coughs> And that is the story which the rabbis, the Chazal, bring down. The story of Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was a Roman Empire emperor, right? Actually, he was the emperor of Rome. And his relationship with Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi the author of the Mishnah, who was one of the greatest of the rabbis 2,000 years ago. And there are certain interesting stories that happened. You know, where you see the togetherness of these two people. And that is a demonstration that the Boshim has not abandoned Asaph, but he wants Asaph to help the Jews do the Tekken. Uh, there's one story where the uh, emperor made a decree that the Jews cannot have circumcision, you see. So, Rabban Shimon bin Amliel, who was the Nasi, you know, he was the uh, president of the Sanhedrin and so on. And he was obviously one of the greatest people of the generation. <clears throat> so, of course, he didn't listen. And he circumcised his son. Who was his son? Rebbe, Rebbe Judah Nazi, right? Rabbi Judah, the prince, as he is known in English, and so on. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, the Romans found out, and they said, well... You, uh, you circumcised his son, so therefore you are subject to death. So, in some way, they denied the charges. So they told Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, well, you know, send your son, right? If you didn't circumcise his son, what they wanted him to do is to send his son with his wife, uh, to, uh, I'm not sure if it was Rome or it was Judea, whatever, and demonstrate that you didn't do it. So his wife went together with the infant Rabbi Yehuda Hanassi. he was an infant, right, uh, to demonstrate and argue, you know, that it really was okay to do it and so on. Yeah, but that would have landed a, a you know, really, they would have killed her. In any case, she went to an inn overnight, right? And she met a woman. And that woman was the mother of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. So they, apparently they became very good friends during that time. And the mother of Rabbi Yehuda Anossi said to this woman that she told her what the story was, that she's going, she doesn't know if she's going to live or not, to try to coax the emperor not to kill her, or kill the child, whatever. So the woman said, you know what I'll do for you? I have a child that was just also born right now, right? Also an infant. And obviously he's not circumcised, because we don't do that. So I'm going to switch babies. I'm going to give you my son, right? Who was the infant Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. You take him and I will take your son for safekeeping. You will take my son to the emperor and show him that you never did. You never did circumcise. You see. So that's what she tells the wife of Rabban Amlil, right, uh, to do. And so on. Which is what she did. She went to the emperor or whoever was in charge and she said, listen, my son's not uh, circumcised. Now, they didn't know that it wasn't uh, Rebbe. How would they know? You see? <clears throat> but in any case, so they said, okay, if that's the case, then you're free. You see? So, she, basically, she went back to the inn, gave Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who had just inadvertently, as an infant, saved the life of Rebbe Nosi. Right? That's exactly what he did. He was instrumental, right, in saving the life of Rebbe by demonstrating that he was not circumcised, you see. <clears throat> so, uh, of course, the wife of Rabbi Shim you know, Ben was tremendously thankful and so on. So the woman said, you know, since my child and your child, their fate is so intertwined, I would like it that they should remain friends. You see? And that's exactly what happened. What happened was is that Antoninus, who this child grew up and became the emperor of Rome, you know, God arranges all this has nothing to do with mankind, and he actually became Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, one of the great emperors of Rome. You see, and in a a certain time of uh, his rulership, he lived in Feria, and Rebbe lived in Feria. So apparently they reacquainted themselves. And Antoninus realized the greatness of Rabbi Hanasi, And he became very close with him. You see, very close. You see, and, the, and Antoninus used to actually come to visit Rabbi through some type of a secret passage, whatever. So what was interesting about that is that uh, since he liked uh, Rabbi so much, you know... So what he did was uh, certain things. And the rabbis talk about this. The Chazal talk about this in the Gemara. That once Rebbe was not feeling well so he wanted to go to his bed. So there was no stool. Apparently the beds were high and uh, there was no stool that Rebbe could get onto and get into his bed. So Antonina said to him wait, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me bend down on all fours, and you step on me, right, in order to get into your bed. I mean, this is the emperor of Rome. Can you believe this? So, Rebbe said, I can't step on you, you're the, em- you're the em- emperor of Rome. And a person has to respect, you know, the head of state of, uh, of a country, especially Rome, and so on. So, Antoninus said to Rebbe, well, look, uh, better I, you know, I, I, I only wish that, you know, my you using me as a footstool here in this world, you will do the same in the, in a future world where I will be your footstool. I mean, it just shows you the incredible relationship that Antoninus had with Rebbe. But one of the interesting things about their relationship, now, <clears throat> remember, remember, Rebbe was a descendant of the house of David. That's who, where he comes from. And Antoninus, right, is Asov. He's the emperor of Rome, you see. And he was probably a Gilgal of Asov. <clears throat> so the relationship between Rebbe and Antoninus demonstrate the ultimate relationship between Edom and Yaakov, Asav and Yaakov that Edom or Asa will assist Yaakov in the Tikkun process. You see. Now, did that actually happen? And the answer is yes. Most people are unaware that the ability of Rebbe to write the Mishnah, which is the ultimate oral law, right, the Torah uh, al peh, is the Mishnayis. And the problem was there were many different, for, in about one Uh, 80, 190, or 200 CE, right? Everybody had his own version, his own private text of the Oral Law. Each Rebbe would, uh, you know, would instruct his student Talmud and give him notes. But each, each person's version of the notes was different. So Rebbe realized that you can't do that because he saw... He realized that the Jews is now, are now about to embark into Golis. He realized that. That they're going to be spread all over. Uh, so what the Jews need is a common standard text of the oral law. One version. You see, not many, but one. But he couldn't do it. Why? Because in order for that to happen, he would have to call all the sages of Israel, all the rabbis, the great rabbis, the Tanoim, together, and make this convention where each one would give their version of the Oral Law, and then the Rebbe would decide, well, which one do I, which version of the Halacha, the Law, should I put in the Mishnahis? Um, But the problem was, how do you converge, how do you bring all these Rabbis together? You can't do it in the Roman times. Because there's a tremendous amount of decrees against learning Torah. But at the time that Rebbe realized he wanted to do it, right, who was the emperor? Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. So he told that to Marcus Aurelius. This is what I want to do. So since he was the emperor of Rome, he made sure that there would be a tremendous peace in the land of Israel. So, therefore, Rebbe took advantage of that. He convened all the great sages of his time, right? And they all sat, whatever, and they agreed which halacha, which version of the halacha, right, should be incorporated in the Mishnahis. Now, ultimately came that the version that was incorporated was the version of Rebbe Meir, who had the version of Rebbe Akiva, his Rebbe, And that was the clearest one. So Rebbe decided to use that. But in many places he brings down the arguments. The Mishnayis is the totality of the Oral Law. It's an unbelievable text. It has 4,192 paragraphs or Mishnais, you see. And that has, when you think about it, over 35,000 halachas in it. You see, in any case, and he was only able to do that. Why? Because Marcus Aurelius Antoninus created a tremendous peace right? in, in, in Eretz Yisrael, and Rebbe was able to convene all the sages to get together and agree on what the standard version of the oral law should be. You know, it's in many ways, it's a similar... Where the Continental Congress, you know, Washington and Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, where they all got together and made a constitution. You see? Because that's what's needed, is a standard version, right? And what the laws should be that the country's based on. Well, That's the same thing that happened with... He made it, which the standard version should be of the oral law. So it comes out something very fascinating, uh, that Marcus Aurelius, because of what he did, he enabled the Mishnah, the standard text of the oral law, right, which is sacred, to be written, to be produced, to be created. Uh, Could you imagine what that is? But what does that remind you of? Isn't that the exact posuk? And the older will serve the younger. It's exactly what it is. It wasn't just that they had a good talking relationship. No. Antoninus actually helped Rebbe create the text of which the entire Gemara is based on. And all the halachas are based on. He enabled them to create the standard version of the oral law. It's incredible. You see... So we begin to realize, you know, this person, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, isn't just an emperor. He was the one responsible that enabled the Mishnahis to be written. Therefore, could you imagine his reward? Every Jew who learns Gemara learns Mishnah because the Gemara is basically a commentary on the Mishnah. So could you imagine that this guy? right, Marcus Aurelius, that he is responsible uh, for the unbelievable promotion of the Torah itself. And not only that, but that the fact that the Mishnahist was written was a guarantee, basically, that Torah would not be forgotten. Because without a standard ver- version, right, uh, then nobody would know what the P'sak is, what the decision is. You see? Because there would be so many different versions of the halacha. So, Rebbe, by standardizing the oral law and putting the accepted psak, the accepted rule, right? In the Mishnah, Marcus Aurelius is responsible as one of the greatest people ever known to further the observance of Torah. Think about that. It's absolutely astounding what this man did. Therefore, so we see. Therefore, that the relationship between Rebbe Judah Nossi, and Marcus Aurelius was divinely ordained, and in fact, both of them represent the real relationship between Esau and Yaakov. Right? That's what we see. Rav Yaavoi the older will serve the younger. And it served means in an incredible way. Talk about assisting the Ticun process. I mean, what Marcus Aurelius did was outstanding. Therefore, what I see is that Marcus Aurelius Antoninus was further reincarnated to come out in an individual Donald Trump. Same idea. And I... I have a whole series of Shurim on what that means. That in order, we, since we are right before the Mashiach, the Jews need assistance from Edom, from Esau. And Donald Trump is the, he, he's a messianic figure. Of course, he's not a Mashiach, but he is a Messiah of Edom. Because a messianic figure is somebody who's anointed, right, to do a significant task. And the task of Donald Trump was to do what? To assist the Jewish people. And when you think about what he did in the four years that he was the president, it was incredible to move the embassy, right, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, to recognize Israel, to recognize the Golan, to be the founder of the Abraham Accords, and then to stand up to the UN against their anti-Semitism, and then to throw out the PLO from Washington, right? And then to stop the PLO uh, in, uh, in, in Jerusalem from being separate, but to join them together with the Embassy of the United States, and then to remove money from UNRWA. Uh, um, right? It's incredible what the person did, you know? So it's interesting to watch what the Rosham does with Esau, that he continues the reincarnation of Aesop in his primary relationship or his essential relationship with Yaakov. First as Aesop, and then certainly as Marcus Aurelius, and then ultimately as Donald Trump. You see, we can actually see the evolvement of this, of the relationship. It's a very important concept of what uh, Trump really was and that he continues to be. And like I say, because he is that type of person, you know, as a Gilgal reincarnation of Marcus Aurelius, and by the way, a president of the United States, is the equivalent of a Roman emperor. You should know that. There's no question that Trump was set up to like Jews. I mean, his daughter became a religious Jew, his son-in-law, are, of course, religious Jews, right? And not only that, uh, his, most of his money is made in real estate in New York and so on, and they're all Jews and that. He's very familiar with Jews. His close associates, you know, his lawyer and so on, you know, they're, they're, they're all Jewish. It's amazing how many Jews he is connected to. And he himself has a tremendous affinity where he really, I hold, he really loves the Jews, in that sense. So how do we explain that? Where did he get that from? I mean, it was known that his father was good to the Jews. But his liking of the Jews, in many ways, is extraordinary. And the idea is that he is of what is called of B'tikunoi. He is of in his corrected or rectified form. That's a Gilgal of Marcus Aurelius. See? So I wanted you to understand, we're not looking here at an accidental relationship, you know, or incidental relationship. No. We're looking at history repeating itself over and over again to ultimately become the ideal relationship between Yaakov and Esau, right? In the form of Edom, in the form of the good part of Esau, and like I once said many times, <clears throat> we are watching an obsession by the evil of ASOV, the Democratic Party. We're looking here at Joe Biden. We're looking at a tremendous amount of evil. That is the establishment, of the deep state, that want to destroy America. So what we're really watching is the good part of ASOV fighting the bad part of ASOV. And of course, the one behind all of this is the sudden satanic forces. That's what he's trying to do because he realizes that if Trump succeeds in becoming president, he will destroy, in many ways, the evil of America, you see. And therefore, he's trying to influence everybody obsessively to destroy Trump. Well, we will see what happens in 2024. Right. But uh, it's amazing to be able to, to, to look at the Chumash and realize that the Chumash is not something that was; it is something that is and always will be. And there are so many things that can be understood, you know, based on the on the uh, on the Chomish and so on. You see. <clears throat> in any case, <clears throat> this is what we what we see so far. Any questions?
1: If um, Trump is the tikkun of ASAP? yes. Then he's just here to uh, show the good side of him. Like, what's his what's his his job then if he's already has the tikkun?
0: No, he's he's involved in bringing bringing the tikkun. It's an ongoing process.
1: Oh, he so didn't fulfill it.
0: No. But he's in, the, he, he's in the midst of that mission. So I believe ultimately he will be president in 2024, primarily because that's his mission, and that he is a sub in the form of Marcus Aurelius, in the form of Donald Trump. So if that's his mission, then he obviously has to continue what he's doing so I believe that he will win. And it's not a big deal for the Sham to make sure he wins. You know, and it makes sense, especially with the revelations coming out, you know, that the elections were rigged. The FBI and other government agencies actually were in cahoots with Twitter. It's astounding. Never happened in American history. The government actually withheld information That would have meant that Biden would never be president. Because how in the world can you elect him as president, right? When the laptop of his son, Hunter Biden, shows definitively that he colluded and bribed and received bribes from an enemy of America, communist China. Of course he would never have won. So he was right. Trump is right. The election was rigged, you see. All of this is coming out, ultimately, I believe, to uh, make sure that he will be president. And once he is president for another four years, I believe that he will enormously help the Jewish people, you see, to complete the Abraham Accords and to work together with the, uh, the Likud and the religious parties to bring tremendous amount of Torah. That's why Israel all of a sudden is changing Their government is changing, you see, and it will be very interesting to see what the House that just became Republican, what they will do. Because it's very possible that this year is a year that has to accelerate the Messianic process, you see.
1: Yeah, because the way you're speaking, you're already six years out, but don't we only have eight years left?
0: Right. We don't, that's not much time, believe me. But you could see the pace is accelerating. Right? You could see the pace is accelerating.
1: Right.
0: Which is amazing. I mean, you know what happened in Israel is unheard of. There is nobody on the left in Israel in the coalition. Which means that the, the right, the religious parties can now request, and they are being given all kinds of ministries, incredible, which will help Torah, spread Torah in Israel. And I believe ultimately Torah in the entire diaspora, you see. You see, it was looking at it in front of our eyes. And it actually happened in Hanukkah, which is what I started off this year, you see. But it needs also, you know, once Trump takes over, then you're going to have the same thing. You know, he's going to fight anti-Semitism, And I believe he will destroy the left, the Democratic Party, because they have destroyed America. More than that, they have destroyed the morals of the world. And therefore, I believe that the Bansham is going to take them out. You see? So, it's got to happen, hopefully, by 2030. And I brought the Zohar down. That says... 210 years before the end, the end is 2240, which is the year 6000. 210 years before that, which is the English year 2030, will be which means Sheikh bin Yosef, right? The be the end of the exile, right? And the, uh, the Mashikh bin David Can you imagine that? In eight years, less than eight years, actually, it's almost seven. Yeah, really, it's getting exciting. But we see the changes. We can we can see historical changes taking place. You see.
1: So if Trump is Asab, all of the Jews are Yaakov.
0: Yes, definitely. All the Jews are descendants of Yaakov. <clears throat>
1: I mean, we're doing the tikkun for Yaakov?
0: Yes, the Jewish people do the tikkun by the observance of the halachas. Right.
1: So, in the next two years, I mean, we're still going to be in the slumps? Like, how do we... Uh, we still have two more years of Biden, so how do we...
0: <clears throat> well, Biden is going to be, uh, in many ways, blocked. You see, because the House will become Republican, so he cannot pass any legislation, because the Republicans will be against anything that he wants to do. So he'll be blocked for two years. It's called a lame duck. And besides, who knows even if he'll survive? He's an old person, he's got dementia. You know, who knows? You know, the bunch will take him out in a second, and so on. Yeah, but the question then, what happens? Who who becomes the uh, president? I mean, you know, we certainly don't want Paris, whatever. <clears throat> but uh, things are going to move. Things are already moving. Like I say, historically, they are moving. That's unheard of, you know. And next year is going to be an incredible year for this country, you know.
1: Next year, meaning 2023 in a week,
0: Right. Yeah, okay. actually, it's in one week. Right. I talk <laughs> about a year. It's already one week, right? Uh, <clears throat> right. But like I say, look, the critical thing I feel is when Biden signed the bill, the Marriage Act, on December 13th, right, he, equival- he made this generation or America the equivalent of the Dorham Bad news for America. You see. And therefore, I believe certainly what that has to mean because it's going to get much worse with the LGBTQ and all that. Uh, it's going to get much worse in terms of the depravity of what America will reach. And therefore, the Bansham, you know, if we, the Bansham is going be true to what he did in Doam Mabel. he's going to bring Mashiach to end it so you are looking at the slow process as the sun rises slowly you see you're going to be looking at uh, these things also coming